We spend so much time on stuff. And by stuff, I mean, you know, possessions, things, you know, finances. I mean, have you ever stopped to think about how much of your life is focused on, on stuff? I mean, just think about how much time you spend roaming the aisles at HEB for more stuff. Or how much time you spend each week clicking and ordering on Amazon. Got to get that prime for more stuff. Or just your house. Like, if your house is anything like mine, then, then you have things. You've got stuff, stuff that you're constantly reorganizing or cleaning or saying to yourself, I'm going to sell this. You're not going to sell it. You're going to put it in your garage like every other person. And then there's finances. We spend a ton of time, like, checking our balance, making sure that the bill doesn't pay until the paycheck comes in, worried about things like retirement. I mean, a lot of our life is spent focused on stuff, the, the management of it, the procurement of it, it, it has a hold on our lives. And if we just look at our lives and where our time is spent and, and what our heart is anchored in and what we spend our, the energy of our mind worrying about, stuff has a hold on our human existence. Truthfully, it, it's one of the biggest parts of our lives, which is why for the next few weeks, uh, we're, we're going to be in a, in a short series called More Than Enough, where we're reminding ourselves what it is the Christian faith has to say about all of our stuff, specifically how we should view our things, and then how we might utilize our things for, for the biggest impact possible in the world. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, oh no, I've come on the Sunday where they're going to talk about money. <laughs> I brought a friend on the Sunday where they're going to talk about money. And I got bad news for you. You did, in fact, come on the Sunday where we're going to talk about money. But here's the thing. Here's why. Because the Bible talks a lot about it. And because if we, if we don't have conversations like this, there's a lot that's at stake. Here's what's at stake if we never think like, like reflectively, deeply, biblically about our stuff, like especially our finances. We, we run the risk of robbing ourselves of two things that I know you want and that I want. We run the risk of robbing ourselves of peace and purpose with our things if we don't have these conversations. You see, contrary to what your, your gut, your instincts will tell you and what all the influencers on Instagram will tell you, that, that the key to having less anxiety and making an impact in this world is not having more things. Now, everybody else will tell you that, that the more you have of this or that or this one thing, your anxiety will ease and your impact will increase. That's not true. The reality is that it's not, it's not about what you have, but how you see and how you manage whatever you have. Because stuff, like especially money, it, it, can't, it can't deal with and it can't satisfy the deepest human needs. It just can't. You, you don't have to take my word for it, though. Like, listen to some of the richest dudes who's ever lived. This is what they say. Just a couple of quotes for you. This is from Vanderbilt, very rich guy. He said this, The care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Astor I'm the most miserable man on the earth. John D. Rockefeller, he had a couple bucks. I have made many millions, but they've brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. Henry Ford, I was happier doing a mechanic's job. Now, don't get me wrong. I am sure that there are some wonderful perks to having their kind of money. I'd rather have their problems on a yacht than have my problems in my house, okay? I'll be honest about that. But here's the thing. 
possessions, stuff, the stuff you have, the stuff you want, it is in no way a guarantee of happiness. It is in no way a guarantee that you will land with a sense of peace and purpose in your life, which is what then drives us to discover what God has to say. And and you hear it over and over in the scriptures. If you have any knowledge of the Bible whatsoever, you know that the Bible calls you away from longing after stuff of this world and to set your, your heart and your aims on something greater. We just heard it in Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read it again to you from a different translation. It has a different nuance to it. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, it's important to note that nowhere in the Christian faith does it demonize stuff. Nowhere in the Christian faith does it say that it's bad to have things, even a lot of things. It never says that. Instead, what it tends to look down on is when your stuff has you. It doesn't look down on having a lot of stuff. It looks down on you having this this inordinate focus and need for, obsession with, being driven by the things of this world. It's not about having a lot of stuff. That's not bad. It's when your stuff, whatever you have, has you. The goal for Christians, as you read through the Bible, is simply this. The goal is to pursue something called contentment. Contentment is is being satisfied and settled with whatever you have. Contentment is being satisfied and settled with whatever you have. Your possessions don't possess you. You possess contentment. Whatever you have is enough. Now, notice the writer of Hebrews is not talking about a one-time choice. Like you just get up one morning, you're like, okay, I'm going to be content with everything. No, it says, it says, and this, is, this translation I just read to you is, is a better sense of the original language. It says, keep your life, meaning this is something you have to work toward each and every day. Contentment is not a one-time choice. Contentment is something that you contend for regularly. A content heart, a heart that is, that is still and satisfied with what they have, whatever they have, is a heart that, that has undergone some regular maintenance to make it content. When I was growing up, my, my dad was a car guy. And we, we didn't have a lot of money, but we always had cars that ran really well. And, and what's the key to having a 1983 Buick LeSabre that runs really well, well into the 21st century, or having a 1989 Chevy S10 that you enjoy driving well past the time you should, the key to that is regular maintenance. The key to that is keeping it from the typical wear and tear of everyday life. And the same is true with your heart. A heart that's content is a heart that has contended to be content. It's undergone regular maintenance. You must contend, fight for a feeling of being content. Keep yourself from a love of things that can't satisfy. What's interesting is that like, the early church really got this. Like the first century church, second, third, fourth century church. Like for the first 500 years of Christianity, uh, they really got this. History and the scriptures tell us that, that they fought to be content with their stuff and not controlled by their stuff. And it then like freed them to make a profound impact, an impact that history records. In fact, the... The contentment of the early church, it it made noise in the ancient world. It caused a bit of trouble for them in the ancient world. For example, 
Um, in, in the fourth century, the pagan world in Rome uh, was known for being, let's just say, liberal with their bodies and stingy with their wealth. Uh, they were known for being willing to sleep with anybody but share their money with nobody. And then along came Christian communities. And Christian communities had this totally different ethic. Uh, the pagan gave nobody their money and almost anybody their body. And then there were the Christians who had this really high view of marriage and they were really striving to be content with their stuff. And so they were the opposite. They were known for giving nobody their body and like anybody their money. They, they lived with a radical sense of generosity. Their, their contentment made them counterculturally generous, so much so that the ancient emperor of Rome, Emperor Julian, is on record of having said this about Christians. He said, it is disgraceful that no Jew, he's talking about Jews who've converted to Christianity in the Roman Empire, it's disgraceful that no Jew ever has to beg and that the impious or rude Christians support not only their own poor, but our poor as well. All men see that our people lack aid from Rome. The generosity of Christians was making the Roman Empire look bad. If you're freed from a love of money, you are freed for a life of profound impact. That's the point. That's what contentment can open you up to. So, so how does one keep themselves from a love of money and contend for contentment? Well, the, the scriptures lead us to believe that really, honestly, it comes down to like a matter of perspective, like how you choose to see things, like the things you have. It, it comes down to an attitude you seek to embrace and, and a perspective towards stuff, especially money, that you, that you fight to protect. You see, our, our natural, we would say sinful instinct, is to view everything in the world, especially ourselves, with an attitude of scarcity. Our, our impulse is to, is to focus on what we lack and on who has more. And it's been this way since the very beginning. And by very beginning, I mean like book of Genesis, very beginning. God puts humanity in the, this incredible garden. And he says, it's all yours, all of it. It's all yours, do what you wish. Except for one thing, just one thing. Genesis 2 puts it like this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Let me read that last sentence again. You may eat of every tree in the garden. It's all yours, but one. It's all yours except for one. Every other tree, have at it, have fun, work it, keep it, enjoy the whole thing. You can say it like this, God put mankind in a garden of yes with a tree of no. And what did we want? The one thing we can have. And we like to like shake our head at Adam and Eve, but nothing's really changed, right? Like nothing's really changed for me. I tend to focus on what I lack and who's got more. And, and I feel like I'm in good company because um, a recent study showed that students at Harvard feel the same way. There was a study not, done not long ago of students who were enrolled at Harvard University, and they were asked a hypothetical question. They were asked, would you prefer to get a job that paid you $50,000 a year, it was option A, $50,000 a year, or a job that paid you $100,000 a year? That was option B. 
50,000 or 100,000? On the surface, it seems like a no-brainer. Well, I'll take the 100K plus benefits. Thank you very much. But then a caveat was added. If they took option B, the $50,000, they would be getting paid half as much as their peers. They'd be get, I'm sorry, they'd be getting double of their peers who got $25,000. If they chose option B, they'd get paid half as much as their peers who got $200,000. So option B would make them more money personally, but make them poorer than all their peers. So which do you think they chose? They chose option A. The majority, the vast majority said, I'd prefer doing better than others, even if it means less for me. Which proves something we kind of know about the human heart. We care less about what we have and more about what we have in relation to everybody else. It's because we choose to focus on what we lack and on who's got more, which breeds nothing but discontent. Now here, here's the perspective that you, person of faith, that you and I must try to pursue. And, and this is important. Rather than focus on what we lack and who's got more, we are called to focus, to fight for a focus on what we have and on who's in charge. Now, let me read you again what the writer of Hebrews says. It says, keep your life from a love of money. Be content with what you have. For he said, this is reference to Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. Now this is Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. He's adding, adding a little kind of spice onto this. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The biblical answer to the question of how much is enough is this what you have right now. The biblical answer to the question of how much is enough is what you have right now. Because from the perspective of faith, our security is in no way tied to what we have, but instead it's tied to who's in charge and what this person who's in charge has said about us. And this person who's in charge is a good and generous God who's made us members of his family and promised us a future. And if that's true, then whatever I have will be enough. Look, some of us need to hear this. Your view of God is the most important thing about your life. Your view of God is the most important thing about your life. Even if you don't believe he exists, that's a view of God, and that still is the most important thing about your life because what you believe about God shapes every other choice you make, and it shapes how you see everything that you encounter. So, for example, if you believe that God is this kind of angry taskmaster, then you will live in fear and longing to earn his approval. If you believe that God is absent then you will live believing as if he doesn't matter and if it's all on you, all the pressure is on you. If you believe that God is this angry judge, then you'll, leave, you'll live bitter and on your best behavior. If you believe that God helps those who help themselves, then you will live trying to give yourself a heaping helping. But also, if you believe that God is sovereign, meaning he owns everything, 
If you believe that God is good, he can forgive anything. If you believe that, that God is gracious and generous and he's promised you amazing things, that God is always present, he won't leave you in the dark thing, that he's a helper who's promised to be with you in the bad things. If you believe he's sovereign and he's good and he's present and he helps you, if you believe those things about God, then listen to me, you don't have to clutch onto clamor for the things of this world. If you believe those things, you don't have to clutch and grab and, and hold so tightly to earthly things. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you, which leads me to a tough question. What does the way in which you spend your money and you deal with your stuff say about what you believe about God? How does the manner in which you handle your possessions say about what you believe about the one who made you? Now, here's the good news. What we, what we believe is that Jesus Christ has lived and he has died and he has risen for you and for me. And he's, he's lived and he's died and he's risen so that he can earn forgiveness for your attitude of scarcity and your, your dalliances with discontent. And in Jesus Christ, we are guaranteed, in Jesus Christ, we are guaranteed that the kindness and the generosity and the power of God is working for us, not against us. We are guaranteed that the power and the kindness and the generosity of God is not hidden from us. He's not holding out on us. He's not playing some game with us. It is for us. He's with us. In Jesus Christ, that's the guarantee. The generous, powerful God is for you, with you. And if that's true, then it has profound impact in your life. It means that, that for example, these words of the famous preacher Jonathan Edwards are also true. He said this, because of Jesus Christ, your bad things will turn out for good. Your good things can never really be lost, and the best things are yet to come. Now tell me, if you really believe that, how would you deal with the stuff that you have? How would you spend what you hold in your hands? Contentment comes down to a matter of perspective. It's where you choose to focus. Will it be on what you lack and who's got more? Or will it be on the undeserved blessings you already have in hand and on the one who's in charge of you, who's promised good to you and peace to you? Now, along the way, uh, I would encourage you, as you seek to have a focus that fills you with a little more contentment, I would encourage you, as does the writer of Hebrews, to be mindful of your influences in this world. To, to be mindful of your money mentors, so to speak. And, and we all have people who influence how we see our possessions and how we spend and utilize what we have. Be mindful of who you're leaning on for inspiration in your stewardship of stuff. And we all have people that we look to. And that's part of the point in Hebrews chapter 13. Listen again to what the writer says. It says, remember your leaders 
Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Uh, so the writer is, is saying that there were, there were particular people, leaders in this ancient church that he's writing to, presumably you know, pastors and elders, but, but leaders nonetheless, who shared their hope, who held to the same view of stuff as everybody else, and who modeled contentment. And these were leaders that everyone respected for how they lived their life. And the, and the writer says, as you seek to be free from the love of money, consider the outcome of the lives that these leaders lived. Consider the fruit that their lives bore. It was better than what the world offers, wasn't it? Now, what history tells us is that if these were leaders in the local church at the time that the writer of Hebrews was, was penning this letter, then in all likelihood, these were pastors, elders, leaders in a church who were martyred, killed for their Christian faith. And what the writer is saying is this, you saw how their life was driven more by principles of God than possessions, right? And you know how even though they faced hardship, even though they faced persecution, they were filled with a sense of peace, right? And you remember how you were moved by that and how the church grew because of that and the world was blessed by that. You respected that, right? That these people had peace even in the face of persecution. It's noble and inspiring fruit, right? Imitate their faith. And their faith was not in keeping up with other people. Their faith was not in whatever the latest fad says equals security and success or comfort. No, their faith was in Christ. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Translation, the same one who gave them peace in the face of trouble, gave them contentment, will do the same for you. He won't fail you either. Why do you think social media influencers are a thing? I don't know how much time you spend on social media. I spend probably too much time. Probably any time is too much time, to be honest. But why do you think social media influencers are a thing? Why do you think there are people who are paid to go to places and take awesome pictures of which you'll never go and to use products that you can't afford and fill your Instagram feed with pictures of them doing this? Why do you think that is? It's because you and I are very easily influenced. What's influencing you? What's influencing your view of stuff and what matters most? And we all have somebody. Truth be told, in, in my conversations with people and looking at my own life, I think most of us are influenced either by a ghost that we're running from or an idol that we're chasing. When I say ghost, what I mean is this. Some of us had really traumatic experiences growing up when it comes to money, possessions, and stuff. Maybe you grew up in a house where mom and dad made really poor choices, where somebody failed to manage well whatever you were given. And then your entire adult life, you've been running from their bad decisions, vowing not to replicate them, doing whatever you can not to end up like them. You, you're being influenced by your fear from your past. And there are others who are chasing idols. And what I mean by that is we have our eye on our peers, what they have and how they're living. We spend a ton of our time scrolling through their highlight reel of awesomeness and letting that set the expectation for what we want in our life and making us really dissatisfied for what we have in our life. 
And if that's you, you're chasing idols. You're chasing a false promise of peace based on somebody else's possessions, and it ain't going to work for you. What's influencing how you see the stuff that you've been given? And what kind of fruit does it bear in your life? Does it, does it bear the kind of fruit that you think kind of feels like the kingdom of God? Or does it bear fruit like anxiety, fear, and pressure, and discontent that's not of God? And this influence in your life, does it, does it push you towards greater faith in Jesus? Or does it push you, like I think it does, towards greater faith in yourself? To do more, to try harder, to be better, to attain something greater, which only makes things worse. It might very well be time to shift your focus. Consider those who've lived more according to the principles of God rather than the possessions of this world. Consider. I'll close with this. I read earlier this week about a, a very successful businessman here in the U.S. who went to meet the Sultan of Brunei. And some of us are old enough to remember when the Sultan of Brunei was the richest person in the world. Now he's only got about $20 billion, so he's nobody. But at one point, he was the richest person in the world. And this, this very successful U.S. investor was invited to meet the Sultan of Brunei and to make a deal, a one-to-one -one deal between him and the Sultan. And so this well-known man was flown across the globe. He was escorted to the Sultan's compound, led into his home, and led into a private room where he met with the Sultan of Brunei to strike a deal. He met with the Sultan of Brunei via video. He went across the globe into the man's house for a Zoom call. And afterward, he was told that the Sultan simply cannot risk meeting with anyone in person. Despite the fact that he's meeting with successful, reputable people. Which begs the question, how much do you need to feel safe and secure? If this is any indication, if you're the richest man in the world, apparently you need just a little more. What about you? How much do you need? Look, I know that nobody likes to talk about this, especially in church. I get it. But the stakes are too high, and the scriptures are too clear for us not to. And I mean... I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. Stuff has a stronghold on our lives. And if we get it wrong, it robs us of peace and purpose. But here's my hope for you and for me. May, may, we, may we be filled with contentment. May we contend for contentment. May we shift our focus away from those who, from those who have more and what we lack and, and onto what we have but what we don't deserve and to who is in charge and who's promised us peace. And may that open your hands to hold onto the things of this world just a little more loosely so that you might leverage them for a life of impact. That's what we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for how generous you are to each and every one of us. Open our eyes to see it more and more and to appreciate it more and more. Father, we pray that you would shift our focus away from what we lack and who has more and onto what we have and to you who's in charge. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, your goodness and your power are guaranteed to be working for us, not against us. And may that stir in us a freedom to be counterculturally generous, to hold the things of this world loosely so that we might do the work of your world more extravagantly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.